Imagine that it's June 4th of 2015, and you are situated in the Golden State Warriors locker room just before game one of the NBA Finals, okay? So right outside the locker room, you hear the thundering applause of 20,000 excited fans ready to see who's going to take the first victory in this series. And as you're looking around the locker room, it's intensely quiet. Everyone at this point is getting into their pregame ritual to try to get laser focused into uh, just being the best performer and the best player out on the court that night. And as you're looking around, you spot Steph Curry over in his normal spot over by his locker. Right? As you look at Steph that particular night, we're on a first name basis, you know. As you look at Steph that particular night, he looks a little bit nervous, rightly so, because not too long ago, he's just been named the most valuable player of the NBA that year, and now he's got to shine. And he's trying to lead his team against the formidable Cleveland Cavs, going against one of the best basketball players of all time, LeBron James, and he's a little bit nervous, and you see his hands start to shake a little bit, but what does he do? He picks up his Under Armour sneakers, he reaches over and grabs a Sharpie, screws off the top, and writes down on the bottom these five words, I can do all things, dot, dot, dot. I can do all things. That's part of his pregame ritual. Every pair of sneakers that Steph Curry wears on the basketball court bears those words written on the bottom. In fact, Under Armour uh, and their newest release of their Steph Curry shoes actually has that printed on the bottom. I can do all things. And that verse, that section there is taken from a passage in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Steph Curry, when he was a kid or going in, getting ready to graduate high school and go to college, his mom encouraged him to pick a life verse that gave him fuel, that gave him drive, that gave him something to keep pressing forward when he felt like giving up. And that's when he settled on Philippians 4.13. For Steph Curry, Philippians 4.13 is a little bit of a mantra that promises if we rely on God, all of our dreams and ambitions are within our reach. We can do it. We can do all things. Now, I want you to compare that picture with another picture. Okay. Imagine that it's a uh, imagine that it's an it's a blistery night. It's cold, and we are in a large city, walking through the city together. And over towards one corner of the city, we notice this small, dilapidated-looking building. And, and as we approach the front door, we we knock and we and we go in, and we recognize that this is a small apartment that someone is living in. The room is not very inviting. In fact, it's kind of falling apart. It's drafty. It's cold in there. As we look around the apartment over in one corner, there's a little piece of bread that someone looks like they're trying to store maybe for a meager breakfast the next morning. We look over to the right corner, and the only furniture in the room is just this simple desk and a stool, and it's covered with parchment and scrolls. And then we notice over to the right-hand side, the only other furniture in the room is this little makeshift cot that's kind of like a bed. And we see a older gentleman that's curled up in a ball on that cot. As we go over and approach him, we hear him begin to cough. And he has one of those raspy, guttural coughs that just makes you cringe whenever someone does it, the type that just, you know, reverberates through their chest. And as he begins to sit up, we hear the clank of chains because his hands and his feet are chained together. He decides to light a, a light, and he, he lights a candle and goes over to his desk and uh, with shaking hands, he picks up his stylist and continues to write on his scroll there, I can do 
all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? So obviously I'm giving an allusion to the circumstances in the context that the Apostle Paul would have originally penned those words from a Roman prison awaiting trial before Caesar to see if his life would be taken for being a missionary for the gospel. Now, I wanted to start with those two dramatically divergent pictures tonight uh, because it shows two different applications for the same exact verse. And Philippians 4.13 is one of those famous verses in the Bible. There are a lot of people who find the words of Philippians 4.13 powerful and inspiring. And just like Steph Curry, I think there's a lot of people who see that really as a, a self-help mantra promising that nothing is beyond our reach, nothing is too hard, nothing is insurmountable if we just trust in God and believe in ourselves and try hard enough. We can achieve our goals and our greatest dreams if we just trust and try. Uh, another famous uh, tele-evangelist speaker said it this way, talking about this particular verse. He said, a lot of people tend to magnify their limitations. They tend to focus on their shortcomings, but scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It's possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It's possible to overcome that obstacle. It's possible to climb to new heights. It's possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how or how it will all take place. You might not have a plan, but all you have to know is that if God said you can do it, you can. Right? So this idea, you might not know, but all you have to do is dream big, trust God, and you can do anything that you set your mind to. And you know, I think that's the mindset that a lot of people have when they're thinking about Philippians 4.13. We think about an athlete mumbling those words before a big game. We think about a stressed out college student whispering those words to themselves before the final gets ready to hit. We think about Pastor Sam before he gets ready to do his PR for a bench press, right? I can do all things. We think about... <laughs> we think about a runner who is overcoming a physical disability to run a marathon, and they're wearing a shirt that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, none of those things are bad at all. Those are all actually really good things. In fact, I'm really grateful for athletes like Steph Curry who are willing to show that they're a Christian and to voice those truths to a watching world. I'm grateful for those things. Keep preaching the name of Jesus. But as Christ followers who take seriously scripture, one of the things that we have to also take seriously is understanding scripture in its proper context. We don't want to just take a verse and make it say whatever we want. We have to say, how does God want us to understand and then respond to this verse in light of that truth? We always have to read it in the right context. Context is always key. Just think about this way. In 2013, a newspaper called The Guardian ran an article with a subheading, uh, Sri Lanka has the hotels, the food, the climate, and the charm to offer the perfect holiday. But then it says, it's just a pity about the increasingly despotic government, right? So that, that's the article. Well, what happens other than the Sri Lankan government uh, in their travel agency, they take the beginning of that and they just post on their website, Sri Lanka is the perfect place for a holiday as everything to offer, right? But, and then it says the Guardian, right? But it totally left out the part about the despot government and the brokenness and all that. No, 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 no. It's a wonderful place to take a holiday. The context can change the meaning. 
Well, sadly, Philippians 4.13 is one of those passages where people like to pull it out of the original context. Because Philippians 4.13 is not talking about if you just believe in yourself, you can win the championship. It's not talking about if you believe in yourself enough, you're going to pass the final. It's not talking about if you just try hard enough and trust long enough, you're going to find the strength to run a marathon. I don't care how much I believe in myself, I'm not running a marathon. There's no amount of faith that's going to help me finish that if I tried today. The context is totally the second picture that I painted at the beginning of our time this evening. Paul pens these verses from the heart of a Roman prison cell when he is once again enduring the brutality of uh, just torture and agony and all these things for standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in this verse, I can do any circumstance because no matter how good or bad they are, Jesus is still my Lord and Savior and he is daily giving me the strength that I need to faithfully follow him. Philippians 4.13 is not about finding our inner strength to achieve our dreams. It's about finding the divinely given power to be content in our circumstances. That's the real meaning of the verse in the passage we're going to look, about, look at tonight. So with that idea in mind, the joy of contentment that we find in Christ, let's look at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13 together tonight. You can follow along as I read it aloud. Here's how it starts. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you, the Philippian church, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me all along, but you had no opportunity. And he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. As we study these verses in their proper context, a very simple and clear big idea, main application point emerges. Essentially, this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying we need to find our contentment in Christ. He's saying the secret The secret that he's discovered, the greatest secret he can pass along is the ability to cultivate contentment in any and all of life's circumstances. That's our big idea for tonight. Paul is trying to teach the Philippian church, the Philippian believers, that true joy for Christ followers is not tethered to the uncertainty of life's circumstances. Life is a roller coaster with a whole lot of peaks and valleys, but he says our joy and our contentment doesn't have to follow that ride. Instead, we can detach our our joy from our circumstances and attach it instead to our relationship with Christ. Through Christ, we can find the strength to have a resilient and radical contentment regardless of the circumstances that we might face. So from our passage, we're going to see a few different tools for how we can rightly cultivate this type of contentment in our lives. And the very first thing we see is back in verse 10. Notice what, notice what Paul begins this section of the text with. He begins by talking about the joy right? He says, I rejoiced greatly when you showed concern for me. 
Paul says something really interesting here in the Greek that's listed no other time in the New Testament. He says, I mega rejoiced. I mean, that's literally what it is. He says, I rejoiced mega, right? Like mega rejoice, not just a normal rejoice. You caused me to mega rejoice because while I'm in prison, you renewed your interest and your love and your care for me. And that gave me the strength to be content in the Lord. The first thing that we see is the power of community to give us a content heart in the midst of difficult circumstances. We need to commit to Christian community. It's the first thing that we see in this passage tonight. We need to commit to Christian community. And this isn't just a one-time occasion for Paul. If you look at the life of Paul throughout the book of Acts and his epistles, he's not a lone wolf. Paul is constantly surrounding himself by men and women of the faith who are there to help bear his burdens, to speak truth into his life, to help take care of him when he's in need. Paul understands the immense importance of Christian community in the life of a believer. And you know, that resonates throughout all of Scripture as well. From the very first pages of Scripture in Genesis 1, what does God say? It's not good for man to be alone. We are created to need community. We're created to need one another. We need that community. And that's not just something that Scripture says. That's something that even researchers are coming and saying now as they're looking at an American culture that's less connected and less involved in community than ever before. I was reading some research about that this week, and uh, it, it was talking about the breakdown of community and meaningful relationships in the American culture and the dangerous effects it's having on us. When asked during this survey how many close friends the average American has. So close friends is described by someone that you can go to in the time of need and trial and difficulty and they're there for you, that you can confide in them, that type of friend. The average American, when they said, how many friends do you have like that? The average American said one. One friend. One out of four said zero. I have no one in my life that can share the burden when I'm going through difficult times. No one. And as more research has been done, this particular institute is saying that the effects that this has on people's lives, you wouldn't even believe. There are a lot of people that said that the effect of this type of profound loneliness has been alleged to have the same impact on our life expectancy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day with a risk factor that rivals excessive drinking or obesity. In addition, it says a lack of social contact and community has been proven to hasten cognitive decline, uh, decline, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and depression. And one of the things I thought was most interesting in this study is they're uh, talking about these things. They said it's paralleled the declining church attendance throughout America. And one of the things that they said was without religious institutions, people were having a hard way to find meaningful community. Right? That's, not a, that's not a religious report. That's a secular report. But they're even saying with the breakdown of the religious community, people aren't able to find that type of community that they need anywhere else. And even worse, if you're part of Gen Z, the younger you are, the more likely it is that you are experiencing intense loneliness based on these statistics and the joylessness that always accompanies it. There's something inside all of us that yearns for meaningful and authentic community. We all have a yearning to be known and to belong. 
And that's why the community that we have being part of a church body, being part of the bride of Christ is one of the most powerful apologetics that we have to an unbelieving world. One of the greatest things that shows people the love of Christ should be the love that we have for one another and the community that we have through this, through this body that we get to call the church. The moment we become Christ followers, we are a new creation in Christ, absolutely. But guess what? We're also part of a new family. We're adopted into a new family with new brothers and sisters in the Lord. And there's a whole lot of directions in the Bible about what that community is supposed to look like. We're called to rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Christ that are rejoicing. We're called to come alongside and mourn and grieve with those who are struggling with profound loss. We're called to take care of the physical needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ that have nowhere else to turn to where they're going through a difficult season. They're not walking through it alone, but we're coming alongside and helping lift them up. We are to encourage those who are feeling defeated and depressed, and we are to speak words of truth into one another's lives when the darkness in our spirit just doesn't seem to lift. That's the type of commitment and care and concern for one another that we experience in the body of Christ. And that's one of the greatest weapons to cultivate contentment through every difficulty in our lives. Because when life is hard and life throws us curveballs, we need to realize that we never have to face that trial alone. God doesn't want any person to have to be an island navigating this life all by themselves. He's given us community. He's given us each other. But here's the kicker. Community only works if we want to be part of a community. And I think that there are sadly a lot of Christ followers who aren't really intentional about cultivating Christian community in their lives. There are a lot of Christians who have begun to believe the lie that I really don't need church to be a Christian. I can worship as easy from home by myself as I can with another group of people. I, I don't really need church. I'm just, my, my relationship with Christ is my own thing. I think there's a lot of Christians who have settled for a counterfeit, shallow community to where when we come up and say, how's it going? The natural response is great, except everything in my life is crashing down and burning, right? Or in small groups, we give a great Bible answer and we can talk theology all day. But once it gets to the third part of Andrew's super long questions that go incessantly long, right? In our young adults group. And it says, how does this apply to you? Cricket, cricket, because no one wants to share what's going on in, in my life. I think there's a lot of people who are more concerned about appearing like I have it all together so everyone looks up to me rather than being real and authentic and doing life together and admitting that I need, need support and I need help. In a world that's increasingly drifting apart and isolated, the church must be a place where people are genuinely doing life together and modeling authentic care and concern for one another. So reject the lie today. If you've bought into the lie that you don't need Christian community, reject that lie. So for some of you, maybe that means you need to start saying, you know what, I need to prioritize coming to church on the weekends because that's me. Maybe for some of you here, you need to say, you know what, I'm going to stop kind of church shopping and jumping around and I need to pick one local body to plant myself in and start cultivating real relationships. Maybe for some of you, it's taking that step to say, you know what, now I need, I need to be part of a life group. I need to be part of a small group. And I'm going to take that, that first step, that painful step to be v vulnerable, right? To let other people into my life and into my struggles, even though that can be really hard. 
For some of us, maybe it's inviting another couple over for dinner this week to try to begin that relationship. For some of us, it might mean being the opposite foot of that and reaching out to the people who are struggling that need community. Maybe it's visiting someone who we know hasn't had anyone come and talk to them for a while or texting someone saying we're praying for them or making a meal for a family that's gone through a recent tragic loss. What are the ways this week that we can commit to Christian community and really focus on using that aspect of walking through life together to help us find contentment in life's circumstances. That's the first tool. But the second tool that we see takes place in verses 11 and 12. Let's look at those verses again together as well. Here's what Paul writes. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Notice what Paul says there. He didn't say that I've always been this way, did he? He said, I have, what's our word there? Learned. I have learned. Learning implies that the virtue of uh, contentment is something that's foreign to us as fallen human beings. We will not be good at it unless it's taught to us and we have an opportunity to practice it. So our second point that we see here tonight to cultivate contentment in our lives, we have to submit ourselves to God's refining process. We have to submit ourselves to God's refining process in our lives. Commitment is a learned virtue, not an inherent character trait for each and every one of us. And here's the sad thing. Paul didn't say, I quickly learned the lesson of contentment, right? He didn't say, I learned it in a day and got to check the box and move on. What's Paul saying in this passage? He's saying, it took a whole life of difficulty and pain and brokenness and all these things for me to learn that lesson. Contentment was forged in my heart through a lifetime of extreme circumstances. Paul's life was like a, uh, an unexpected, unpredictable tandem bicycle ride, right? So you tandem bike, there's a person in the front that steers, person in the back that kind of jumps on. And Paul, when he decided to follow Christ and be a Christian, he knew that he was getting on the bike. He knew that he was surrendering control of his life. He knew that where Jesus said go, he had to follow. He understood that, as all of us do. But just like us, Paul probably thought, you know, God's going to take me for a nice ride through the park. It's going to be pleasant and wonderful, and it's just going to be a a great, great experience. But instead of going through a nice stroll through Marathon Park, God takes him on a crazy ride through Nine Mile, right? And he takes him on the hardest trails on the tandem bike, and Paul's just holding on for dear life. And Paul's thinking, this isn't what I was expecting. This is hard. What's going on, God? But through it all, Paul says that he's learned to be content. Whether he, was, whether he was brought low and in dire need or whether he was abounding and enjoying the blessings of life. He's experienced hunger. He's experienced feasts. He's experienced abundance and he's experienced needs. And each of these extreme reversals of his circumstances always gave him an opportunity to do a heart check and see if there was any idolatry in his heart. Because when you go from the feast to the famine, you get to see real quick whether your joy and your source of joy was Jesus and your relationship with him or all of the material blessings that you were experiencing in your life. And with each reversal, I think each time a little bit more of the idolatry and Paul's heart was killed. I think a little bit more of 
uh, trust in the goodness of the Lord was cultivated within his life as he saw Jesus provide for him time and time again. And I think with each and every time Paul learned that if my joy is set on my circumstances, it will be a never-ending coaster up and down. But if my joy is set on Christ, nothing can take it away. Just think of some of the specific extreme circumstances that Paul experienced in his life. On Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13, he's over in Cyprus, and Paul starts off with a bang. He walks into town. There's this false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and he does all sorts of uh, sorcery and all these other things, and Paul goes in and rebukes him in the name of the Lord, and he, casts, and he causes this guy to be blind, and the city erupts, and the proconsul gives his life to Christ, and Paul is riding the tidal wave of being a preacher, right? Like, that's awesome. I just blinded a guy in the power of the Spirit, right? Woo! <laughs> Ooh, that's pretty sweet. But then just a couple of chapters later, Paul is in a different city now. He's over in the city of Lystra, and he's thinking the same thing's going to happen. I'm getting up there. He starts to preach. He's expecting the tidal wave of repentance, and suddenly something flies out of the sky and smacks him on the forehead. And no, it's not a raindrop. It's a rock. And he starts to think, oh, this is weird. Someone accidentally threw a rock at me. And then a larger rock smacks him in the face. And then he gets pummeled with large rocks until he is literally, everyone thinks he's dead. His limp, lifeless body is laying there covered in blood. They've been throwing stones at him for uh, a better part of an hour now. And they drag his body out of the city and leave him for dead, right? Well, Paul is kind of like the zombie guy that just won't die, and he comes back to life, comes into the city, and he goes out preaching again. But that's probably a low, right? You go from a high, eh, that's probably a little bit of a low. Even during his time in Philippi, the, the city that he's now writing this letter to, they're thinking back of his time there, and he starts off on a high. He goes down, he preaches the gospel. Uh, a lady who's a seller of purple, she's very wealthy. She becomes a Christian right off the bat. And what she say to Paul? Why don't you come live at my place for a little bit, you and your group of people, right? So Paul goes and he's a guest at this house. It's probably a large, impressive house. It's probably delicious food every night. He's kind of enjoying the high life. It's going great in Philippi. Two weeks later, uh, a, re a rebellion breaks out. And what happens? Paul gets beat. He gets whipped and he gets thrown in prison when none of that should happen to him because he's a Roman citizen. And Paul finds himself in the middle of the night in prison singing hymns to God, remembering just a couple days ago he's feasting at the table, a high and a low. And as we continue to look at the rest of Paul's life, I don't have time to go through all of it, but uh, as we look at Paul's life, he experienced intense hospitality and charity. He got to see incredible revival. He was on the forefront of the original mission trip, but he also was scourged five times, beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked three different times, and he spent an entire night adrift alone at sea. There were countless days he was without food, water, and shelter. I don't know about you, but I don't want to swap lives with Paul. <laughs> the highs are incredibly high, but the lows are incredibly low. He feels that reversal of circumstances all the time. But you know, the thing that hits me as I think about this, the circumstances were so extreme. They were so good. They were so bad. He, could, he was in a palace one night. He was in a prison the next night. And then Paul, as he's writing this letter, what does he say? Yeah, I'm just as content in a palace as I am a prison. I can do either one right? After 60 years of doing this, it's fine. Get, whatever God gives me, I'm happy with. I'm content with. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I can be just as content in the prison as the palace. God used the unpredictable and oftentimes trying circumstances of Paul's life to forge within him a stronger and deeper faith. God wanted Paul to be able to disconnect the source of his joy from his circumstances and reconnect it to Jesus. Paul says that alone can be the source of joy that brings true contentment that can overcome our circumstances. His contentment was forged in the fire of trial. It reminds me of the forging process for the ancient Japanese swords that are world-renowned. So these particular swords, as the swordsmiths would uh, forge them and create these particular blades, it would take up to 8 to 16 different times of them heating up the metal, folding the metal, uh, forging the metal, and then cooling it back down. And they would do that 16 different times times to get rid of the impurities, to forge it together, to make it the sharpest, most reliable, strongest blade of the ancient world. 16 different times. When our lives, I think a lot of the times, it takes a lot more than 16 times, but God understands that with each forging, with each time we're put into the fires, with each time that he has to smite the blade, it's getting rid of a little bit more of the idolatry, a little bit more of the self-reliance, and a little bit more of our lack of dependence on him. It's a painful process, but learning the joy of contentment, we have to be willing to submit ourselves to the refining process of God's work in our lives. But that brings us to an important question. I've talked a lot about contentment so far, but I haven't really defined what that word is. What is the word biblical contentment all about? Now, answering that question in the first century world would have been a little bit of an interesting endeavor because in the first century world, uh, contentment was kind of the self-help buzzword. So if there, there wasn't, but if there was, you know, your first century Barnes and Noble, as you're strolling through the self-help section, you'd see all of these stoic philosophers with their self-entitled book, Contentment and How I Discovered It, right? Like this is, this is what people are looking for. It's a buzzword in the philosophical religions of the time. But the approach that Paul has to contentment versus the, uh, the Stoic philosophers is completely divergent. Because when you look at the Stoic philosophers, when they talk about contentment, they say that contentment is found through just kind of this self-reliant grit. <laughs> it's this idea that if we dig deep enough and we can just detach ourselves from the material world, we don't have to be impacted by it, and we just have this self-reliance, we have this self-sufficiency where we don't need anything else in the world, and that's how you find contentment. You have to be a self-made person that's reliant on nothing. But Paul's understanding of contentment is literally the opposite. It's not self-sufficiency, it's God's sufficiency. It's not independence, it's total dependence on God. When Paul is talking about contentment, he says that contentment comes through me recognizing that I can't control the circumstances of my life, so I shouldn't attach my worth and my value and my identity and my joy to those things. No, I need to find those things in Christ. And as I increasingly see my total dependence on Jesus, the things of this world aren't quite so scary and intimidating as they once were. Paul says, I can be content in every season and circumstance because my joy and satisfaction flow directly from my relationship with the Lord. 
And no changing circumstance can ever rob me of that. And that's so important because if our joy is attached to our circumstances, it will fail us. I think of a character in scripture known as Zacchaeus. He's a guy who, as far as circumstances, he would have had pretty good ones. He's extremely wealthy. He's extremely powerful. But when he encounters Jesus, what does he do? He willingly chooses to dramatically change his circumstances. He says, Jesus, I'm giving half of what I own away to the poor, and anyone that I defrauded, I'll pay them back multiple times over, right? He says, I, I've tried money. I've tried having everything. I've tried putting my worth and my joy and my possessions. It hasn't worked, but I found it in you today. He says, I want to follow you. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And he takes that lens of seeing life through eternity for the first time, and he says, wow, there's some changes that have to take place in my life. And that's so true in our lives as well. We have to learn to view this life through the lens of eternity. And when we do that, we find the power to not be so overcome by the struggles and difficult circumstances in our lives. Think about it this way. Let's say, I promised you guys a lot of trips in the third Monday service. I've never taken you on a trip yet, but I'm going to promise you another trip, right? So imagine that you get a free trip in the... Uh, a free trip this January, right in the middle of the coldest weather, and you and your family get to go to, he, to Tahiti, to a five-star resort for an entire week. Everything's paid for. It's wonderful. It's nice. But then you get on the airplane, and you aren't first class. <gasps> You're in coach, and even worse, you have a middle seat. Man, it's a three-hour flight. How am I ever going to survive this middle seat, coach seat, on my way to Tahiti, Right? You'd probably get over it, right? Uh, maybe they'll give you a bag of peanuts and things will brighten up a little bit, right? Like it's probably not the end of the world. But the idea is your, your understanding of the destination impacts the way that you view the circumstances that you get there. And that's a little bit what Paul's saying here. He says, I know where I'm going. My relationship with Christ is secure. Eternity has been granted to me. So the things in this life just don't consume me like they once did. It doesn't matter if my job doesn't go exactly what I wanted because my identity is not in my career. He says, it's okay if I have to downsize my house because my house isn't what gives me joy anyway. He says, you know what? It's okay if, if I... It's okay if all of these things in my life don't go exactly the way that I want because I know they'll all be made right in eternity. If we have this type of eternal perspective and deciding to make Jesus the sole uh, source of joy in our lives, it radically impacts and transforms our lives. We won't be consumed with materialism like the rest of Americans because we know that more doesn't always equal better and having the most doesn't equal happiness. We would be able to not fall into despondency when we lose that job or get passed on a promotion or get transferred to a different state because our worth isn't tethered to our net worth, our happiness isn't contingent on our success, and our job isn't, and our joy isn't dictated by our, our zip code. We wouldn't have to grieve the death of a loved one as those who have no hope. Absolutely, we grieve. But Paul says you don't have to grieve as those who have no hope because we know that Jesus defeated the sting of death on the cross. We don't have to be devastated when the brewers have another disappointing game, because though the brewers let us down, Jesus never will. <laughs> we can confront the lie that Satan whispers in our ear that your life is meaningless and empty unless blank happens. You'll never be happy unless you're married. You'll never be happy for some of you. You think I'll never be happy unless I'm divorced. You'll never experience true joy unless I'm able to have children. You'll never be happy if you don't get to go to your dream college. 
There's all sorts of things that the enemy whispers and says, if your circumstances changed, you'd be happy. But Paul says, don't believe that lie because changing circumstances never brings joy because contentment and joy is not an outward matter. It's a matter of the heart. It's all about what we have enthroned on the throne of our heart. If it's anything other than Jesus, it'll fail us and it'll let us down every time. And you know, as I teach about this tonight, it's pretty easy to keep it in the theoretical. But as I look across the room and I see a few hundred faces, I'm cognizant of the reality that there's a lot of people walking through really difficult times right now. There's some of you that might be walking through feeling abandoned from a loved one and you just don't understand why. There might be some of you who got passed over for a job or you lost your job or some, you got just devastating news and that circumstance, it is so hard right now to find joy in. Maybe some of you are grieving the loss of a loved one or you're grieving the, just the end of a friendship. There's so many things. You're grieving a, a health diagnosis that you heard. There's so many things that we might be walking through tonight. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that life in this world is oftentimes broken and painful. It truly is. But the promise of this passage, the hope of this passage, is that even in the difficult circumstances of life, God has created for us, created for us a way that we can find joy and experience contentment. And it's not by pretending those things aren't real. It's not by pretending the pain away, but it's surrounding ourselves in Christian community it's recognizing that all those terrible things, yes, they happen, but nothing can rob us of God's love for us and the reality that we are bound for glory. And nothing can take away the promise of Philippians 4.13, where Paul writes, I can do all things because Christ strengthens me. It's the third thing that we see in our passage. We have the promise for divine empowerment. As we think about all those trials, they seem like we could never overcome them on our own. And the reality is we can't. We're not strong enough. We don't have the inner strength. We don't have it on our own. But we don't have to do it alone. Because Paul says that Jesus is within us, strengthening us every single day, one day at a time, to say, today I can choose to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. Today, Jesus is giving me the strength to do what I need to do. Today, he's giving me the strength to choose joy when I just want to fall into despondency. Philippians 4.13 isn't a verse about chasing our dreams, pursuing our passion, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, or accomplishing anything we want through God's divine assistance. Instead, it's a powerful testimony that as we cling to Jesus as our everything, God graciously gives us the strength and power to faithfully and joyfully follow him even through the valley of the shadow of death. So tonight, if life has just been kicking you around, if your circumstances are crippling, if you're longing for joy that truly, truly satisfies, cling to Jesus. Until we let go of the idols and attachment to the things of these, this world, joy will always elude us. But when we turn everything over to Jesus, when we make Jesus our one thing, when pleasing Jesus is our vision that we put before us every single day, we find the strength to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As Sam comes up and he's gonna start underscoring a little bit, I just wanted to close tonight by sharing a, a quick story of my friend 
I'm changing his name for security reasons, but I'm going to call him Enoch. I just read his story this week. Enoch was in an unreached country for most of his life when he was growing up and he always felt like something was missing. But later on in life, through some miraculous events that you'll be hearing about in a couple months in our Mission Moment video, he became a Christian. And as he became a Christian and his life was changed, his life was transformed, he recognized that there is nothing better than knowing Jesus. And he wanted absolutely everybody to know that message. And that gave him the courage to go and be a church planter in a region of the world where they don't really like Christian church planters. One night he was back at his parents' house in his hometown and there was a group of guys that had shown up and told his parents they were friends of his from high school. So they let him into the house. And as he came home and he saw this group, they quickly told him, you need to come with us. And they blindfolded him and drug him out of his house. They took him into the middle of a forest that night. He had no idea where he was. And they started to ask him, why are you a Christian? Who paid you to become a Christian? Who told you to come here and try to convert our Muslim brothers and sisters to Christ? And he said to them, no one sent me. I'm, I'm not a pastor of a church. He said, no, I, I came because my God sent me. He said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus has transformed my life. And I just want to tell people about the joy I found in Jesus. And they said, you are an infidel. You are going to die. And they had a bag of rocks and they were going to drown him in a lake nearby. And in that moment, he cried out and said, God, help me. Give me the strength to do what I have to do. In that moment, they started to throw garbage at him. They started to beat him up a little bit. And he started to think to himself, this is the end. And he said to the Lord, if there's a way out of this, great. He said, but God, regardless of the outcome, give me the strength to be faithful. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In that moment, one of the religious leaders kind of intervened a little bit and he said, is there any evidence that he's caused people to come to know Christians? And none of them had any evidence. And he said to him, who is your God? He said, my God is the God who created heaven and earth and sent the Messiah to save each and every one of us. He says, I have to tell you because my God sent me. And the religious leader said, all religious people must do as their God said, let him go. So they decided to drop their weapons, drop everything they leave and they leave them in the middle of a forest. And I just start weeping as he's so grateful that God delivered him. At the end of his message, at the end of his email, he's been a pastor now, a church planner for 10 years since then. And he just wrote, praise the Lord for continuing to let me be a part of his ministry to bring glory to him. I am so honored. May I continue to live for God. I don't know about you. I don't know about me, but there might be a lot of us that would say, you know what, God, I'm done after that. <laughs> I'm not content when I've got something tied around my neck that's going to drown me in the lake. No. But here's a man who said, you know what, I found the secret to contentment. I found the secret to uncircumstantial joy. It's my relationship with Christ. Because no matter what this world throws me, I'm bound for glory. So that's the message of tonight. If there's anybody out there tonight that maybe as you look over your life, you don't have the hope of being bound for glory. You don't know the joy that comes from that relationship with Christ. Tonight would be a fantastic night to get right with the Lord and repent of your sins and put your faith in him. So just have a moment of contemplation as I pray. And then we're gonna sing one final song, Be Thou My Vision, making Jesus Christ the vision of our lives. Let's pray. 
Father, it's a pretty convicting passage as we unpack the words of Philippians 4.13. You know, I kind of liked that verse a lot better when I thought it meant that I could do anything that I wanted if I just believed hard enough. But no, that's not what that verse is about. It's not a self-help mantra to tell me that I can do whatever I want. No, it's, it's a promise that I can go through every and any circumstance of life because you're giving me the strength I need to be faithful. So Father, I pray that each and every one of us tonight live faithfully for you. Help us not to tie our joy, our worth, our value, our identity to the emptiness of the things of this world, but help us to be fulfilled through knowing Christ and being known and loved by him. Father, you love the world so much that you gave your son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Help us to rejoice knowing that we're bound for glory as long as we have a relationship with you. Work in our hearts. Expose the idolatry and sin. Help us to walk away from here changed tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.